Blog Talk Radio. The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help their fellow man, hoping we can make it better. And that's why we're here, because we do think that we can make a difference in the world as Christians as we figure out that our Christian life is not unconnected to our place in the world and what we do here uh, every day. That That is one of our themes here. And uh, boy, we have got the guy to talk about that today as a guest. Our guest is uh, today is Steve Garber. He is Senior Fellow for Vocation and Common Good with uh, the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust and author of The Seamless Life. Uh, we're going to hear about what that is, uh, but I tell you, I think it has a lot to do with what we focus on here is connecting life to faith. That's what we like to do, and that's what we like to talk about, uh, having, having a life that is totally uh, given over to the Lord so that all things are sacred. We are not, we are not divided. So uh, we're excited to have Steve with us and uh, to have a good connection this time we no oh boy <laughs> yeah we didn't do too well last time so uh uh apologies there but um Steve welcome to Blog Talk Radio It's good to be with you again John even far far away across America as we are Yes yes oh gosh well there was a time when we lived on the same street in Palo Alto if you remember that long time ago so oh my time we were goodness. almost neighbors. But, uh, were you, were you, you on Waverly Street? Yes, you, I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Now, how did that? I was down. down that, I was down a few blocks from where your little commune was. I was living in another commune, but yeah. I remember you guys. It was a guy with a red red hair and a lot of red hair, and had a little mm-hmm. convertible or something, and he and I used talk about things oh my gosh so it was the same time you were there at the same time yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah were you going to stanford or what what was going on there no i was i was i was living in a commune like you were so yeah Jeez. on waverly that's street that's, that's wild did we ever did we ever meet then and talk i don't know really i mean you were kind of a star at the time Playing your music around California and the world, and, and I was yeah. starstruck. I have to confess. So, uh, yeah. Probably went. Yeah, it had all gone to my head too. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, that's cool. That is really that's that's uh, 
a great blast uh, from the past. So I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, first, we want to talk about your latest book with uh, InterVarsity Press, the, the Seamless Life. And then uh, hopefully we can leave a little time uh, to talk about that new project you're working on, the new book, because okay. uh, that really intrigues okay. me. So tell us, tell us a little bit about the seamless life. What, what is it all about, and uh, what what drew you to uh, to to write this book in the first place? Mm-hmm. That's a good question, John. If we had hours, we could pursue it more lingeringly. Yeah. But um, but a little bit here. Um, so the subtitle of the book is A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. So in, some, in its own way, it's trying to account for the breadth of life, the depth of life, the complexity mm-hmm. of life, the interwovenness of life. Um, and the book is an unusual book for me and for IVP, actually, because it's a book of essays with photos that are mostly ones I took, actually. So they don't usually publish books with photos, but this was an, a try for them to do that. and. And mostly they got it okay. There were a few they kind of messed up on, but mostly it's okay. Um, but just thinking about where you are in California and even Southern California, um, one of the essays in the book I call, I've called Vocation as Sacramental Signposts. And I think in the first lines of it, I talk about the sainted story of California. Hmm. And uh, what I have written about is, you know, the sort of the strangeness of history and having San Diego and San Clemente and San Luis Obispo and San Francisco mm. and you know all these sainted cities that were of course brought mm. into being by Father Junipero Serra and Captain Morega and, and the you know expansion of the Spanish hopes and interests in the rest of the world and history is complicated because of course it has to be complicated so it's not only ecclesial or you know, the mission of the church, but it's also military. It was also economic and political and all of that. And, and, um, um, and uh, but, you know, years later, we still call it San Diego and we call it like San Clemente yeah. and, you know, and uh, um, Santa Barbara and um, Los Angeles. Uh, they didn't mm-hmm. change the names as America became a more secular society. Uh, but one of the interesting stories I've told in that is of how um, in the next generation after Sarah, uh, the first Europeans that we know took a, a, a horseback, you know, as you went, had to have done, crossed the bay, the San Francisco Bay, and went up over the hills, the Oakland and Berkeley Hills, and to see what was to be seen. And the best maps they had at the time, actually, they imagined there was a big in, inland sea somehow out there they didn't know because nobody had been there as far as they know um, wow. what they found in crossing the oakland hills was a big valley going far away in these huge mountains this, we call them the sierra nevadas today of course mm-hmm. uh, but this is a really happened to john it really did happen this way this is recorded for all of us to ponder but that day when they were on horseback and into the valley and we now call the san joaquin valley of course um they were just exploring and, you know, taking in the wonders of all the birds that were singing and the butterflies that were flying and the fish in the water and the blue skies and the flowers. And, and someone said for posterity, for all of us to ponder uh, in Spanish, this is as beautiful as the Holy Sacrament itself. Hmm. And we get hmm. the name of the city Sacramento from that exclamation. Wow. 
Wow. Now, most Californians I've talked to never, ever even imagined where the name came from. So it's no. interesting to think about it out loud a little bit. But one of the essays in the book, again, I called Cations as Sacramental Signposts. And what I've argued is that, you know, whether we're Father Junipero Serres or whether we're Captain Moregas or whether we're butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, but, you know, scattered about California and beyond. But California, you can't get away from the missional architecture. It's just everywhere. There's a missional history. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the adobe-colored walls and the, you know, red-tiled roofs are everywhere in California. The the bell towers and the bell-shaped, you know, curves. And everywhere you look, there is a remembering of this missional history. So what I've, you know, argued for is that, um, well, it's fascinating to see it that way, to remember that history, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there was a, a sacramental vision of all of life, of all of reality that was brought into being, and it really is ours still to remember, because that makes most sense for us of this way that, you know, we have access to a more seamless life, a tapestry of love and learning, of worship and work, where all of life is sacramental. Mm. Mm. Why, why does that seem so hard for Christians today to do in uh-huh. in, in our culture? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to just be so, so silly about this, but the book is full of essays, and there's another essay not in California, somebody in Alabama, in mm-hmm. Birmingham, mm-hmm. Alabama. I was asked to mm-hmm. speak one morning for a, a prayer breakfast for the city of Birmingham held at the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is iconically, tragically remembered for the bombing in the early 60s when the little girls were killed on a Sunday morning. Um, and uh, this was the first time they ever hosted a prayer breakfast for the city, and I was asked to speak on the vision of a recovery of vocation for the renewal of the city. And uh, and I did it with gladness and with seriousness. And, but uh, when it was all over, um, we all gathered around in a big circle after having breakfast. And I spoke my said what I had to say, and we prayed for the city and um, and sang Amazing Grace, the famous song written mm-hmm. by John Newton, of course. But I thought about the irony, and this is in the essay in the book. Uh, it's an essay called Disposed to Dualism. And what I was mm-hmm. re- remembering was that as much as we um, all knew that song by heart, kissing it with our eyes closed, uh, what a good song it is. John Newton, given that setting, a black Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, it was mm-hmm. ironic because, of course, he spent a good bit of his life trading slaves on the Atlantic, you know, bringing them over from Africa and bringing them into the new world and making his own living and his own fortune off of the heartache of, you know, of Africans wow. being sold into slavery. And, um, and the story is true that he did open a, a seaman's chest on board ship one day and opened, found a Bible in it and somehow came to repentant faith at that moment in his life. And, but here's the hard part of the story, John. Um, for the next years of his life, he still, be, he still kept at being a slave trade captain on the top deck of the ship, he would have Bible studies with his other officers while the hold huh. was filled with manacled slaves, manacled Africans, human beings, chains, dying, you know, in their own excrement, mm. you know, off to be sold. There was no apparent in- a relationship in his mind between his work and his worship. Um, wow. and, uh, there was a, a disconnect, uh, what we might call a dualism. And uh, the best history we have is that 30-some years later, we have a record of a letter he wrote, just repenting, full of anguish over the life he'd once lived and how he'd not understood, in fact, you know, the wrong that he was doing, how he realized it was terribly, terribly wrong. 
I yes, there, John. I argue. I admit that I'm not disdainful of John Newton because I'm mm-hmm. like that. I have I'm disposed to dualism. So it isn't that I'm trying to say, well, look at John Newton, how bad he was. It's simply to say we are disposed to dualism as as, as human beings, mm-hmm. um, and as Christians in particular, we are. Um, we separate things out. We disconnect. We compartmentalize. And so I think in some ways it's this disposition to do this that's so deeper than us. And you ask, why why are we like that? Well, I think we're disposed to be like that, apart from the, the grace of God that actually gives us eyes to see the possibility of a more seamless, more coherent life. Wow. Um, is it possible? I mean, obviously you have to believe it's possible or you wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, have spent the time with this. But, but really it's... Yeah. Uh, it's those are those are hard things to overcome because we're really are, aren't, sure. aren't we talking about an entire worldview? In, in, in That's a exactly sense? what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly what we're talking about. A few summers ago, I was asked to teach a week-long course at Regent College in Vancouver, BC, on the book I wrote called "Visions of Vocation," and there were people from all over the country and the world, Canada and the U.S., but way beyond that too in the class and. On Friday, the last day of the class, a woman walked up to me. She was from Sydney, Australia, and she and her husband were coming to Vancouver for almost 30 years taking courses at Regions at summertime. And she said to me, can I talk to you at the break today? I said, sure. And, and uh, so that break, we t- I said, what do, you, what do you want to talk about? She said, well, I think you've answered a question I've had for years of my life this week. I said, really? What was the question? She said, well, I have been laboring over this dilemma for years, and they question has been what's the relationship between my life and my christian life mm-hmm. and i looked at her and wow. i said well what do you think now she said well they're the same thing aren't they <laughs> and i said that's exactly right that's exactly uh, right uh, it's wow. a world view john you're exactly it's a world view yeah uh, uh well what was that uh could you Give us that quote again one more time from which we got the name for the city Sacramento. Huh. Yes. What was that? This, this, is as, this, this is as beautiful as the Holy Sacrament itself. I could give it to you in Spanish, but I won't today. Uh, but it's really in Spanish. Mm-hmm, but it's actually, mm-hmm. the, in the English translation, it is this, this beautiful San Joaquin Valley, butterflies mm-hmm. and birds and fish and flowers and trees, sky, blue sky. This is as beautiful as the Holy Sacrament Holy itself. Sacrament itself. And and he's basically just looking at the natural world. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Having uh-huh. eyes to see, in fact, that this is not just yeah. the natural world, so to speak, or the earth or this earth. It is the it earth. Is. Mm-hmm. It's actually, this is this is sacramental. This is the glory of wow. God. And I need to understand what I'm seeing actually is what God has made here. This is sacramental. Wow. I once wrote a song, Have You Seen Jesus, My Lord? I he's, know that song very well. He's, yeah. he's here in plain view. Take a look, yeah. open your eyes. He'll show it to you. And the first, well, both the verses, other than the one about Jesus, is about the sunset and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the ocean. Remember that. The, yeah. the natural yeah. world, which reveals, basic, which, you know, I was trying to say, ultimately reveals Jesus. Uh, yep, you were. You follow mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So, so how do we carry that? Besides, <laughs> besides going out and getting your book, Steve. Um, how do mm-hmm. we do this? You know, how, how do we carry yeah. this this 
uh, seamless idea. How do we carry this sacrament into mm-hmm. uh, all areas of our life? It, it really has to be intentional, doesn't it? In some, yeah. Yeah, it does. And again, your question is a huge one, John, and we could talk for yeah, I know. pages about it. But, but let me just give it again, because we asked about the book today. I'll try to group my comments in the book. But there's another essay I've called Ora e Labora. And uh, St. Benedict, a Benedictine image mm-hmm. of Ora e Labora. A, which is E.T., Ora, and E.T., Labora. It's to pray and to work. Uh, hmm. And a few years ago, I was asked to speak at a retreat at the Laity Lodge in Texas. Yes. And uh, um, it's a place that for 60 years now has really represented a, a vision for a life of ora e labora. People mm-hmm. come into this place and they be quiet for a while. They listen, they think, take a walk, you know, mm-hmm. eat good meals. But it's meant to really to nourish in heart and mind eyes to see that, in fact, a more seamless life where prayer and work together are held coherently. Um, mm. And uh, so, you know, um, I spent a weekend with these people talking about that there. I think, you know, that I think there is, I think in one sense it is, it is probably worth, as you said a few minutes ago, John, it's worth sort of thinking through what is a worldview? How do I view the world? Do I view it, mm-hmm. you know, through the lens of, of, of a more dualist perspective on things? There's sacred stuff and there's secular stuff, you know? Mm. saying God cares about things. He doesn't care about quite as much, really. You know, um, you know, does God really care about these things and not those things? Does he care about butterflies? Does he care about, you know, mm. uh, injustice? Does he care about, you know, beauty? Uh, um, you know, you and I both lived through, you know, a long period of time where Christians imagined, you know, that they needed to, you know, um, uh, develop a, a CCM world really and you in some ways hmm. are the grandfather of the best best thinking about those things you used to have a column in a magazine yeah. for years and years trying to help people to think through these questions more deeply and more thoughtfully and more seriously um, yeah. uh, but i've known people and you have too john who you know who just have stumbled over you know is this is this music for my life or for my christian life um wow you know? And we would we, we would buy music in the borders of the world. We'd have jazz and rock and classical. Then we'd have what right. was that really? <laughs> right, um, right. It made made no sense then. It doesn't make any sense to me, really. Yeah, um, it was almost because you see it's the same dualism. Yes, yes. Yeah, go ahead. It certainly go is. Ahead. And uh, yeah. you know, we 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 could have possibly done done more harm than good, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. Other than I've often thought about that. In fact, I think I, I think I wrote an article once about what ha- what would happen if the entire Christian music industry just disappeared in a black hole one day. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. well, what would happen? Well, the really talented, gifted Christian artists would just keep doing what they're doing, but they would mm-hmm. do it in the world. They would do it. On the street, they would do it, you know, wherever they could do it. Uh, there wouldn't be a Christian vehicle for it. It would just be Christians making music. And uh, One of my good friends is probably one of your wow. good friends is, is Charlie, Charlie Peacock. Yes. Um, and years ago, I was in his living room in, in the art house in Nashville and doing something. And I asked a group of about 50 young musicians that he gathered together a question, which I've been asking for years and years since then. But it's... Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? 
Hmm. Let me ask it again. I, can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe that a language the whole world can understand? Yes. So you see, in some ways, I'm so. just responding to your column a few years ago. I'm just saying, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, could we actually? Because Charlie wrote a book, you know, at the crossroads 20 years ago or something, basically right. saying to the CCM world, we can make money doing this, folks, can't we? We see we can make money doing this, but should we be? We're just singing songs to ourselves, um, and if we imagine we're doing otherwise, we're kidding ourselves, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you're living Laguna Beach or someplace like that, but you know the the guys down the beach are a few few miles, the switchfoot guys, you know, yeah. who are just skateboarders and surfers and kind of badly produced CD to Charlie Peacock one day, and you know, and the story mm-hmm. very shortly is he called him the next morning and said we need to talk, guys, because he thought they were very gifted lyricists, um, and uh, they had no idea what is what the CCM world was. They just had nothing, no access to it, had no experience with it. But the CCM mm-hmm. world kept wanting to adopt them and say, oh, you guys belong to us. And they said, no, I don't think so. They were just trying to sing songs for the whole world to hear. Really. Wow. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the group U2 has made a whole career of that, mm-hmm. of course, of singing songs the whole world can hear. Uh, yes. Um, and they pray before concerts. They pray, you know, they take their faith seriously in their own unique and distinct ways. But, you know, and I'm just saying whether, whether we're musicians artists of all sorts, whether we're people in the business world, whether people doing any kind of thing in the world, I think the challenge is how do you translate what you really believe to be true about God and the world into language the rest of the world can understand? Mm. That seems to me to be at the heart of our vocations. Wow. That's, that's great. And, and down through history, there have, been, there have been people who have done that well, too, don't you think? I mean, what? I think there have been good, there are there are good there are, there yeah. are good stories of people who have done that. You're right. Good yeah. stories. Saint Francis, yeah. you know, uh, who's the guy that? Uh, oh, the uh, oh, I can't think of his name now. But the one, the one who wrote. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. He had his insights in the kitchen uh, as a priest to doing the dishes. Brother Lawrence. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Brother Lawrence, Brother Lawrence. <laughs> Brother yeah. Lawrence, yes, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Practicing yeah. the presence of God, right? Yeah. That, but you I can think also think about it. the other side of that, John, about, you know, these are both clerics, you mentioned. But how about thinking people like professors like Lewis and Tolkien, you know, who yes. in their own professoring, professoring positions at, you know, the universities of England found ways to tell stories, to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe, but the language the whole book can understand. Um, yeah. And the whole world listens to these stories of Tolkien and the Hobbits and Lewis and the Pepinsey Narnia world, and you know. And uh, wow. um, I mean, they read a lot more, but I'm just saying it's not. It's it's. We have good people to think about and to be, to be our teachers who have figured out how to live in the world but not to be off the ground. Wow, that's exciting. That's great. So that is uh, the seamless life which you can order anywhere, I'm sure. Uh, mm-hmm. In the next, uh, we've got about five or six minutes left. I, I want to okay. hear about this next book because I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by uh, a book that Steve is working on, folks, and it's called uh, Proximity. And, uh, well, the, tell the us. book isn't called Proximity, but 
Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Anything yet, but it's but it's, there's a topic or a theme. It's a question, yeah. but the book doesn't have a title yet, of course. But oh, I think um, it should be. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a great title. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I'd be interested. Uh-huh. Well, it might be. It might turn out to be that way. You're right. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, John, for the softball over the middle of the plate here. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like most things in life, I mean. We just keep thinking about them if they matter enough to us. And, you know, I've lived, you know, I'm not 18 anymore. Uh, um, so I've been watching my own life, watching other people's lives. And I realized that it's it's hard to keep going, hard to keep at it, to sort of keep mm. the first things first in your life, you know, to remember the things you should, you should remember. It's just hard to do that, really. In some ways, that's been the longer vocation of my own life is to think about that question what needs to happen to keep going to keep to keep on keeping on oh um, i'm glad you're thinking and, about uh, that mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah probably 10 years ago a, a, a journal called comment from canada asked me so you've been watching washington dc politics for a long time steve is there a vocation in the political world and i thought about it for a whole summer and i gave him an essay that i called making peace with proximate justice and what I argued was that if you're going to stay at it, to keep at it, and not just become a kind of a flash in the pan and try it for six months, um, we're going to keep going at it. You're going to have to learn to make peace with proximate justice. For me, proximate is a strong word. It isn't a weak word. It isn't a negative word. It's a strong, good word because it, it, it says in this frail world, in this wounded world, in this now but not yet world, we never get everything. We just don't. You know. Hmm. In any part of life, we don't we don't have access to everything, to it all being right. You know, um, the promise, of course, get from Gandalf to Frodo is someday, someday, you know, everything sad will become untrue. But that isn't today yet. You know, it isn't today yet. So how do you keep going? And uh, so for me, the idea of the proximate is whether it's in politics to say, I'm not going to get everything done in healthcare reform. In education reform, in you know, in immigration reform, or in U.S. relationships to China or Russia or Israel, you know, but would you be willing to work for for something that's right, something that's good, for proximate justice, for some justice, even if hmm. you get all justice? Would you be willing to to do that with your life? Is that so worthy of your life, or do you have to hmm. have everything to, to make to say, well, I had a good life, I had an honest life? I would hmm. just say, if you, if you require everything then you're going to drop out. You're going to spin out because hmm. it just doesn't happen in this world. Um, it's like marriage in that sense, you know, that, you know, nobody, 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 the most holy people that I know uh, don't have perfect marriages. And they're the first ones to acknowledge that, you know, they struggle, but they hmm. hope, they love, they give grace, you know, they try it again tomorrow and have delight and pleasure and goodness and touchable, re- real enjoyment with each other. Is it perfect? No, they would never say it's perfect in that sense because they have to keep mm-hmm. giving grace to each other with all the pleasure and happiness they have uh, together. Um, so for me, proximate happiness in marriage is a good thing. Proximate justice in the public square is a good thing. So the book I'm wrestling with and working on, it's, you know, it's about a year and a half into its birthing process, actually, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is about this idea, idea of the proximate, to say that you can choose a different word, John. It doesn't have to be that word. But I would say you have to have a word like that if you're going to keep your heart alive. Mm. Boy, thank you so much for this. And I, I encourage you to keep on, uh, mainly because, I, you know, at this stage in my life, Steve, I'm, uh, you know, we have 
here at the catch, I would say the largest of our group is probably what you would call boomers or 60 mm-hmm. and up. Um, but yeah. we also are attracting a lot of millennials. And I think part of that is just because we talk about grace and, and like they say, we're open 24 seven. So, um, and, and many of them are not going to church. And, and in many ways we're, we're functioning more and more like a church. Uh, we have a service on Sundays, we have Bible studies, we have discipleship going on. And so, yeah, that, that's all, that's all happening. But what I'm noticing is that the people, the older people who are, in their first years of retirement, uh, in many ways, I think they're struggling with this. I, I, I think they're, mm-hmm. they're just, you know, they're, they're just, they're almost like they've unplugged, you know, that's, yeah. well, I, I, I've, mm-hmm. I've done it. I'm, I'm through. Yeah. I did what I was supposed to do. And, uh, now it's, now I get to just kind of, uh, sit here and coast, you know, for the rest of the way, especially if I've got a pension and I've got everything taken mm-hmm. care of. Um, wow. You know, I, I, and, and yet in some ways, couldn't this be a time where, where we could be far more available to the Lord uh, or at mm-hmm. least to the Lord's work um, yeah. maybe than we were before because of our tension span we can we can we can put into it so mm-hmm. anything that's going to help wake us up and um and see that you know what are, what are we really here for in the last stages of our lives so uh, can i say can i say I, one word to you about that please please do I'm just, i hope i was setting you up <laughs> no no thanks. one of the essays again this is again you asked talk about the books or talk about the book more today but one of the essays is I've I've called it on on vocation and occupation, and what I was re- reflecting on in it was these many conversations over many years now with a little brown Starbucks napkin in front of me at that little table somewhere yeah. um, with people whether they're twenty five or sixty five people who of all different ages all different places in, in life um, who are wondering about the question you just asked really. Uh, we ask it different kinds of ways over different different years of life. But what I've distinguished between, I said they're, they're related words, but they're not the same words, occupation and vocation. Vocation is the deeper word about who we are as p- human mm-hmm. beings in life. Um, it's sort of what makes John Fisher unique in the whole of history, all of life, all of all of the world, actually. That was true of you when you were 18 and 25 and 33 and, you know, when you got to be 65. And, you know, it's it's John Fisher. It makes John John actually unique in the world. Um, who you are, why you are, what you do with your life. But occupation isn't that word. Occupation is a different kind of word because it's, it more has to do with the particular relationships along the way of life. Hmm. Um, and those will change, you know, especially in the 20th, 21st century. They change in a way they didn't for our great-grandfathers and great-great-grandmothers. Um, but now in the world we live in today, the occupations often change uh, over, over time. Um, and the challenge, it seems to me, is to have as much coherence as we can have between the vocation and the occupation. Never, never perfectly done, because we don't live in that world. Um, mm-hmm. But we're longing for more coherence between vocation and occupation. And 
Um, I was speaking last fall again at the Lady Lodge to some folks and a couple over there who've been there for you know, for 60 years, and they were in their 90s now. Um, no, they were no, they were in their, they came been coming for 60 years, but they got they were been coming since they, it, it began as a place actually 60 years ago. And the man mm. was in his 90s, and he said, you know, hearing you this weekend, he said, makes me think I think I made the wrong decision some years ago just to say I'm retired and I'm done. Mm-hmm. Because I said, mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about vocation is it's our lives. I'm not done with my life yet. You know, maybe I just need to rethink how I understand my life because you know, yeah. what I was doing work-wise, maybe that doesn't make sense in quite the same way anymore, but my life isn't over. So maybe I, I actually still on myself. I have, a, I have a vocation before me even into my 90s. You know? mm. It'll mean to be different than it used to mean when I was 80, you know, 30 and 60 and all. Mm-hmm. But my vocation isn't over, is it? Because I'm still me. Um, and that was what I was saying. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So your occupation may change, but your vocation. I mean, you were a music, musician for years on. and years and years, John. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you yeah. wrote articles and essays and op eds and things, and then you mm-hmm. did this and you did that. Really, and but you're still John Fisher, really. You know, right? And people are still listening to you because you're John Fisher, as they were when you were, you know, a balladeer a long time ago. Still listening mm-hmm. to you because they want you to help them make sense of the world. You know, so that's John Fisher, really. Whatever the particular mm. occupations, you know, whether it's at PBC or whether it's on the catch, you know, decades later of your life, people are still listening, hoping you're going to help them. The words you give help them make mm. sense of their lives. Wow. Different occupations, but the same vocation. Yeah. Wow. That's so encouraging. Well, Steve, uh, this has been great. I, I, our time is up. Yeah, I'm good glad. To voice again. Yeah, you too. And I'm glad we got it in this time. And I think people will pick it up and understand. <laughs> we know interruptions. And and uh, so, listen, will you come back when that next book is out and talk to us about it? I promise to, I promise to, go, fish, to go fishing with you if you promise me a good catch, okay? <laughs> okay. I do. I okay. do. You've, you've actually given me two or three good catches. I'm, I'm sitting here with, uh, you know, the sacraments. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm remembering two things. The sacrament, oh, I don't want to forget the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I may have to re-listen. I can't remember okay. the second one. Uh-huh. It was a big one. Oh, I know. that we. Uh, it's from Charlie Peacock. Uh, Charlie that Peacock, discussion yeah. okay. that we've got to, mm-hmm. we, we ha- our message uh, can be mm-hmm. understood, needs to be understood by the world, by the whole world. The universe. Yeah, by the whole world. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's great. Okay. You give me plenty to chew okay. on. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're a good, you're a good man. God bless. Still a good friend, John. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you That was cool. Did you get that, folks? You're listening to The Catch. Okay, let's get that sacramental life going. And let's think about speaking to the world in words and concepts the world understands, not just Christians. Have fun with that one. God bless. Speaking, speaking.